Well, we're in our series here. We've been through the, the, um, this time uh, of 2023, most of the Sunday nights. We have been going through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. We're in chapter number 9. And I'd like to take your, call your attention to Genesis chapter 9, verse number 18. I'm going to read the remaining verses of chapter 9, but we'll be referencing not only that chapter, but also we'll be making some minor reference to chapter 10. So I'm not going to take and read that. It's a lot of names that are listed there. And uh, I'll let you do that when you get home tonight, okay? And you go ahead through chapter 10 and go through those names. But let me look here. Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse number 18. And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and was drunken. He was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward, covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth. He shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Now please understand, as we go through the remaining portions of Genesis, well, as you do some study in that, you'll find that the years begin declining, and to where you find what our average age is today, uh, as far as our lifespan, but uh, that's due to the things that t- transpired out of the flood. If you want to know more about that, weren't here for last week's message, you go ahead and get that. But let's pray together as we talk about this subject here, what I'm going to title, The Beginning of Nations, The Beginning of Nations. Father, thank you uh, for the time that we have to open thy word. I, I pray that you would indeed speak to us. May we have some great application that we can take at the end of this message to understand how we can effectively use this and minister to people and uh, open up our understanding, give, help us to learn, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we've come through a lot of things in this study on the book of Genesis. Uh, we've noted, first of all, right off the bat in this study, that the creation week, all that God created by the word of His mouth and by His hands... We then observe the beautiful paradise that God had established for the first two human creatures and what God intended in marriage and in His relationship with humanity. But then after that, we saw temptation make its uh, entrance into this world. Sin did as well, and that was in chapter 3. And Adam and Eve now are sinners, and, but God had provided a means of deliverance for Adam and Eve and all of their posterity. From there, we begin seeing the explosion of society, and at the same time comes corruption in that society. And yet, in the midst of all that corruption, there is a godly line brought down to one 
uh, whom God uses to rescue those who would believe in His way of deliverance. And that was Noah. Noah was a righteous man before God, lived holy before the Lord. He lived righteously, justly before others around him. And God chose him to build an ark for the saving of people. Sadly, out of the whole world, and there were probably thousands, even maybe millions of people that were around, and only eight people chose to get on that ark of deliverance. But out of those eight people now come the establishment of what we're going to call here the nations as we know them today. This worldwide flood was brought on this world by God Himself, and now Noah, his three sons, and their wives, respectively, all step off the ark. Last week's message, we looked at this. As they get off the ark, Noah offers an offering unto the Lord. It's an offering of thanksgiving, but it's also an offering of petition before the Lord, understanding the fact that, God, you judge the world because Our world got away from you, and we want to make sure that as we move forward, we don't get away from the commands of God. Because of that, God blesses them, Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. God reiterates the mandate to go ahead and repopulate the earth. And then God expands on His gracious dealings with mankind by making a covenant with Noah. And again, I'm not going to rehearse that. That was last week's lesson. But I want to note something here, very interesting, just as a brief review from last week. At the point we come here in Genesis chapter 9, God has made a covenant. He has sworn, if you will, that He will never again destroy the world with a flood. That means there's going to be No more do-overs, if you will. So that way, the people that exist on the earth right now, Noah, his wife, three sons, their wives, and then generation after generation, they're going to go on as long as the earth remains, and that is, according to 2 Peter 3, until God does destroy the world again, but not by a flood. At that time, God will destroy the world by fire, And He'll usher in the new heaven and the new earth in which righteousness then will dwell therein. Between that first flood, Genesis chapter 7 and 8, and that last final flood, if you will, of fire, God is not going to go through and say, oh, let's reset this again. Oh, let's reset this again. No, God is going to work through creation and through the curse and the sin and brokenness, and redeem a people unto Himself. And that's why we're here today. We live amongst this sin-cursed world. We live amidst all of these people of corruption and things that are going on. But God is working through to redeem people, to save people, to bring them unto Himself. So that way, someday, when this earth is destroyed, not by a flood, but by fire, You and I can be saved and be with God forever. After the first flood, the people who exist are very small in number, just eight of them. But from here, we're going to see how these sons of Noah will reproduce themselves and establish what we know of today as the nations who will scatter across the face of the earth. Now again, some of that has to do with next week's sermon as well. And at least as what we would expect is the fact that 
naturally that would be the next story. All right, Noah gets off the ark. He gives an offering unto the Lord. God blesses. And there we would think we would read about this table of nations. But sadly, between the covenant God made with Noah and between, chap- between that and chapter 10, where the genealogies are listed out, there is an unbelievable story about a righteous man who sinned against God. And I, with that, I want to go ahead and jump into this aspect and talk about, first of all, Noah's problem. Noah's problem. Look at verses 18 to 23. Now, we read about Noah here. Bible says he's a husbandman, that is, he's a farmer. And one thing I like about the Bible is the Bible never dismisses sin in the life of an individual. I don't know about you, but if you were writing a book about a group of people, let's just say you were writing about Calvary Baptist Church and its history, you might want to go ahead and just gloss over all the problems and, and just highlight all the good and, and the great blessings that have been upon Calvary Baptist Church. And that's the way we would write a story. But when God gives His Word, guess what He doesn't do? He doesn't dismiss any of that. He doesn't dismiss the problems of people, the sin nature, the sinful actions that they have committed And so, to me, it's a beautiful thing to read about these things because in chapter 6, when we're first introduced to Noah, how do we look at Noah? It's almost like Noah's on this huge pedestal. Wow. Noah's a just man. He's righteous before God. Here's a guy that becomes, if you will, the Savior of the world. But I want to tell you something. Noah is not really the Savior of the world. It's God who's the Savior. God just used an individual. And so when we read about this problem of Noah after the flood, I'm reminded of this, that man is sinful even if you put him in a perfect garden. Man is sinful even if you give him a second chance on earth, just like Noah had. I mean, Noah leads his family and makes provision for people to jump in the ark, leads all these animals, stays 371 days on the ark, steps off, And there's nothing wrong with him being a gardener, nothing wrong with him dealing with grapes and making grape juice and and wine and various things. But here's what happens. Noah gets drunk. That's the problem that's given here. So I want to break this problem of Noah down into three different areas. First of all, the problem that has to do with Noah himself. There's a problem with Noah in the fact that the Bible says he got drunk. All right. Proverbs chapter 20, verse number 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Do me a favor, hold your place here in Genesis chapter 9. Go to the book of Proverbs. I want you to see what the Bible says here in Proverbs 23, also about this area of wine and strong drink and the problem that it can pose for people. Proverbs chapter 23 And verse number 29, it begins asking a series of questions. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has babblings? Who has wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? All right, here's the answer. Verse 30, they that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine, 
Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth its color, and the cup when it moveth itself aright. At last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. And he goes on further. You can see the description that's given there. But I'll tell you what, one thing I note here about this study is this. Whenever you study a particular subject in the Bible, there's always something to be mentioned about the first mention in the Scripture. In fact, if you were to take a study of any subject in the Scripture, here's a good way to study it. You would take the first mention of that subject in the Bible. You would take the last mention of that subject in the Bible, and then you would look at everything in between. Is it not amazing that the first mention of wine in the Bible has to do with a man getting drunk? Now, you may be here tonight and you might argue with me biblically and you might say, well, preacher, look, the Bible, you know, it talks about there's a sin of drunkenness and, and therefore, you know, we've got alcohol here and a lot of Christians are drinking alcohol and all that type of stuff. Let me just tell you something. Do a study on wine and alcohol in the Bible and note the trouble and the problems that are associated with it. Do your own study. Don't sit here and just listen to me, but I'm just telling you what I have done as an individual, what I believe as far as the leadership of our church, that we want to be sure that we stay away from that which can cause a lot of harm and a lot of trouble. Now, as a pastor, I have found that much counseling that I have done, that the problems that arise in marriages, in other relationships, a lot of it is revolved right around alcohol. And so therefore, I've just made a decision, you know what, I might be one of those ones that can go ahead and say, well, I can go ahead and just do this loosely, but you know, I've just decided because the Bible gives a lot of warnings, I've decided I'm, I'm going to stay away from that because I don't want to get myself caught up like Noah did. Here's Noah. Now people say, well, maybe after the flood, Noah didn't realize the fermentation and all that problem. I think Noah understood what was going on. And Noah gets drunk here. And some have, again, tried to make a big deal out of it. But it's quite amazing here what happens to people after great victories. You know, I'm amazed at many Christians who have a lot of great victories in their life, and all of a sudden, a ne the next week, they fall off the bandwagon. They get into some sin. They do something that they know they shouldn't do because they've ridden such a spiritual high that the devil likes to come in at any moment as a roaring lion he goes about seeking whom he may devour. And I'll tell you what, Noah gets off the ark, gives an offering unto the Lord, God blesses Noah and his sons, and now Noah just says, all right, now I can take a little ease with my flesh. Be careful on all of that. I think Dr. Henry Morris in his book, The Beginning of the World, says it well when he describes this whole scenario. Here's what he says, and I quote, the formation of intoxicating wine from the pure, healthful juice of grapes is a perfect symbol of corruption and decay. The process of fermentation is a decay process, and the effects of drinking the alcoholic products of this decay is likewise, in several respects, a breaking down, both physically and morally. It is essentially the same process as that of leavening, which everywhere in Scripture Leaven is a symbol of sin and corruption. Again, what does this do to Noah? Well, again, I quote Morris for just a moment. He offers the explanation that the artificial heat induced by the wine impelled him to go ahead and throw off his clothing. Now, he's in his tent. I understand that. But here's where we find Noah. Noah's drunk, naked, 
sprawled out in his tent asleep. And now here's the second problem is the problem of Ham. All right. Notice how Ham enters in. The Bible tells us here in chapter 9, I want you to notice here in verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. Now, I have read some commentaries this week that some have alluded to the word saw, that there was something to that, that there was a much more than just a simple glaze, that there was this stare. And, and honestly, I don't even feel that I'm qualified to answer what is all in this word saw. But I believe the emphasis is more on this in regards to the sin of Ham. Yes, Ham went into the tent where his dad was, sees his dad drunk, sprawled out there in the tent. He saw it. But here's the problem. Ham now goes to his other two brothers and he begins to tell them of the shame of his father. Oh, this spiritual man. This man who built this ark and used us to bring people and saved all these animals and gives this offering to the Lord. Now look at this leader sprawled out in his tent drunk. I think Ham came to his brothers with the idea of finding pleasure in telling them satisfaction and letting them know of his dad's weakness. So now, what's the problem solving of Shem and Japheth? This whole problem here that we're talking about, Noah's problem, there's a problem, yes, of Noah, there's a problem of Ham, but I love the two brothers, Shem and Japheth, how they solve the problem. Let me just tell you something. There's a whole lot of people in church that love to go ahead and tattle on other people. But I think the greatest people are those that are going to try to help cover a multitude of sins, not wash things over, not ignore it, but people who will be gracious and merciful and say, you know what, there go I, but by the grace of God. And I want to help people. So what does Shem and Japheth do? Now, I'm aware, as maybe you are, and probably as I read this, you're probably thinking to yourself, I wonder how pastor is going to preach this message here tonight. Because there's been a lot of things that have been said about this passage. There's been a lot of things said about Ham or Shem and Japheth, that there was some type of homosexual relationship where Shem and Japheth, the Bible talks about them going in backward. And I think a lot has been misconstrued about this whole passage. Here's what I believe took place of the problem solving of Shem and Japheth. Shem and Japheth walk in backwards, and they do that carrying their dad's blanket, if you will, their dad's coat, and they don't want to see him, so they walk in, they lay that on, and they walk out. They did the opposite of what Ham did. Ham saw the nakedness and came out and basically found satisfaction in, well, there's our leader sprawled out drunk naked in the tent, but instead Shem and Japheth go through and they cover their dad up and I love what they do here. But now notice, if you will, as we move further on in this passage, Noah's prophecy. So Noah's problem, this drunkenness, but now Noah's prophecy. Even though Noah had sinned greatly, there were some things that he could see after he got through the humiliation of what went on. Now, I don't know how he found out in regards to... Um, what had happened. I don't know if he was aware himself that, that Ham saw him, if he was aware of what the other two sons did in covering him up, or if after he got up, he came 
to Shem and Javeth or his wife, his wife and began asking and inquiring. But regardless of that, Noah had a good perspective. And really what you're reading here about Noah's prophecy is this aspect, that Noah, knowing his sons as he did, and seeing their actions at this moment, Noah had a good telltale sign of their character and what was going to be in their sons and grandchildren and the generations to follow. First of all, I think as Noah thinks about this and goes through the sin of Ham, that is of seeing his dad and then telling his brothers with joy, I think that sin was greater than Noah's own sin because Ham himself did not respect his dad nor his father's God. But I think Noah then noted the actions of the other two boys. It was duly noted. And within this, Noah is really able to see amongst his three boys into the hearts of his children and see what would actually bear out in future descendants. And before we get into the specifics of the prophecies that are given by Noah, I want to note that the curse is given to Ham, is actually, and then there's a blessing given to the other boys. But please note something very specifically. There's not really the curse, if you will, on Ham himself, but the curse in verse 25, he said, Cursed be Canaan. Now, he didn't curse Ham, who saw his nakedness and went and told his brothers. He cursed one of Ham's sons, Canaan, one of the younger sons, if you will. Now, why is it that Noah does not curse Ham and curses one of the sons? Well, it's quite possible that since Ham, in verse number 1 of chapter 9, was blessed by God, that God, that Noah could not turn around and give him a curse. But I think Noah, in a prophetic sense, and this is what happens really with the prophets whom God uses through the Old Testament, many of them are given an insight by God into some future things that maybe others do not see. And Noah, knowing the curse that Ham, uh, uh, or knowing the sin that, that Ham had committed, sees what's going to happen with one of his sons and begins to give the prophecy about this particular son by the name of Canaan. Noah was being prophetic and he saw the fate of Canaan in the distant future. Now, please don't mix this up and say, well, boy, Canaan, this is so bad. I mean, Canaan's suffering for the faults of his father. I want to tell you something. You and I may have the effects of sin by our parents and by the generations before us, but God does not bring a curse upon us because of the sins of other people. You will be held responsible for your life, for your actions. Yes, you'll be affected. There's not a one of us that aren't affected by the good actions or the evil actions of our moms and dads, of the heritage before us. It all affects us to a certain way, but that does not mean here that God's coming in saying, all right, I'm just cursing Canaan. No, I think Noah prophetically saw what was going to be in this son Canaan and his descendants known as the Canaanites. Now, let me put up on the screen here these three sons of Noah, and let's note the prophecies that are given. Note what is declared about them as Noah takes note of their character. Now to Shem, 
All right, all three names are listed. We'll just move from left to right. I want you to notice, first of all, in verse 26, he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. Out of Shem comes the religious aspect. Do you realize today we live in a world where half of the population worships God? The three major religions cover half of the population of the world. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And all of those really can spring back and realize this religious aspect that comes out of Shem. The height of the blessing, though, was with Shem himself in the fact that it would be through his line specifically that God would reveal to us a Redeemer. And so that's why God says, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. But now I want you to notice now the second son right in the middle, Ham, through him would be the nations that would provide service. Notice here in verse number 26, and Canaan shall be his servant. Canaan shall be his servant. Now, amongst these would be some people that would provide. Now, don't look at this necessarily as servants in the sense of, all right, this is where all the slaves came from and all that. People all of a sudden begin misconstruing. Well, you know, they start using the color, you know, the black people, they're the slaves and all that. That's not what this is referring to. Let's think about this line. Through this line comes a lot of wonderful things that have been provided for civilization all around. In fact, I point out Dr. Henry Morris, his book was just so helpful in my study over the last number of weeks, this book called The Beginning of the World. The Hamites, the descendants of Ham, have been the servants of the world in the following ways. Number one, they were the first cultivators of most of the basic food staples of the world first ones to domesticate world animals. They developed most of the basic types of structural forms and building tools and materials. They were the first to develop fabrics for clothing and various sewing and weaving devices. They were the discoverers and inventors of an amazing worldwide variety of medicines and surgical practices and instruments. Most of the concepts of basic mathematics, including algebra, geometry, trigonometry, were developed through this line here. The machinery of commerce and trade, that is, everything that has to do with money and banking and postal system, were invented by this group of people. They developed paper, ink, block printing, movable type, other things pertaining to writing and communication. So what have they done in the development of these things? They provided a wonderful service to all of humanity, things that I'm mentioning here that we enjoy today. But now notice here the son Japheth. Out of him, the Bible says in verse number 27, God shall enlarge Japheth. Now, out of this comes really some great advancements in the area of philosophy and science. And wonderful enlargements that come about. And really a lot of exploration and settling of different lands. We're going to see in just a few moments in the posterity of Japheth that many of them settled in portions of Europe. And guess where many of us are from? We're from that area. Many of them came over and settled here. And so their land, their population, if you will, would be enlarged. So this is Noah's prophecy that is given of these three children. I want you to stop for just a moment and look at this. There was another commentary. I'm just going to bear this out. You can look at this for further uh, 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 
further study here. But I want you to notice here three sons that are given of Noah. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You and I are made in the image of God. God is a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But with you and I made in the image of God, we are made, I believe, in three parts. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body. I want you to think with me for just a moment. The spirit part is that religious aspect that correlates to Shem. The social aspect, if you will, that relates to Japheth, but the bodily, the physical part relates here to Ham. And it's amazing here sometimes how we get things so mixed up here in the order. You know what happens in this world? We emphasize so much of the body and the material things. How do we put the order? Body, soul, spirit. But how does the Bible put it? Spirit, soul, body. What's most important for you in your life? It's your relationship with God. What's most important for you? It is to develop that spiritual nature so you can be in tune with God. But I'm telling you, Satan and this world and its philosophy is trying to pull you away constantly to overemphasize the body and the material things more than the spiritual. And so that's why here it's amazing how God mentions Shem first. In fact, most of the time when you read through, guess who's listed first? He's not the oldest but it is Shem. Why? I think God, in in a very simple way, is just letting us know that religious aspect, that relationship is most important. But now let's note the last area, and that is Noah's posterity. Again, I'm going to go ahead and put all three names of the kids up here, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And really, when you look at chapter 10, which we didn't read, I'd encourage you to read it tonight. If you have trouble sleeping, it may put you to sleep a little bit, getting through all those names, okay? But read through chapter 10 and go through these names. And here's what you're going to find. This has commonly been referred to as the table of nations. The table of nations. It includes the list of the founders of 70 nations who actually descended from Shem, Ham, and Javan. Now, I don't have time to develop this, but it's very interesting, the number 70 that's given here. There were 70 elders that were in the New Testament. There were 70, uh, that, that number's used many, many different times. But in looking at this list here, amongst the three sons, it's interesting to note that for Shem, there's 26 descendants listed, 30 descendants for Ham, and 14 for Japheth. Now, while some will look at this list and they'll say, well, this must be an exhaustive list. It's not really an exhaustive list. It gives us just enough names to help us realize this, that after chapter number 10, guess where the emphasis now goes? No longer is it really Japheth and the concentration there. No longer is it Ham and the concentration there. It is now with Shem. Because it is through Shem whom Abraham comes. And it is through Abraham and these founding fathers and take it all the way down, this is the line whom the Messiah comes through. And that's the rolling theme that is through Scripture. And so while in chapter 10 you're going to read about these three sons, two of them begin to kind of fall into the background and one now becomes preeminent, if you will. But let's note these various children, if you will, and see what comes from them. Let's note here these three sons, first of all, from Shem 
is the Semitic nations. Now, Shem was the ancestor. Look at chapter 10, verse number 21. Unto Shem also the father of all the children of Eber. Now, Eber is, it's, it's believed, is the origin of the Hebrew word for Hebrew. The word Shem has this idea of a name that would be made great. And from Shem actually comes the modern words that we use, Semitic or Semite. Those are derived from his name. But how interesting, look at verse 22 of chapter 10. Here's the five sons named of Shem. There's Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. Now, Tracy, these would be good names for you, okay, if you don't have a name picked out yet. So I'm just trying to help you here, all right? But notice here now in chapter number 11, all right, look at chapter 11, verse number 10. These are the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and began Arphaxad, that's one of the five children listed, two years after the flood. Shem lived after he begat Arphaxad. Notice Arphaxad, verse 12, begets Selah. Selah, verse 14, begets Eber. Remember, that's where Hebrew, this idea of Hebrew comes in. Eber begets Peleg. Peleg here is when the Tower of Babel took place in his time. But I'm not going to go through the rest of the names. But would you jump down to verse number 26? And Terah lived 70 years and begat, can you say that next name for me? Abram, who we know as Abraham. And it's interesting to note, if you will, go to chapter 14, verse number 13. It says here, and there came one that had escaped and told Abraham the Hebrew. Where did that name come from? Well, Abraham, as a descendant of Shem, and also as a descendant of Eber, Abraham's the first one now that becomes the father, if you will, of the Hebrews. So the Jewish people coming here through the line of Shem. And again, there's a lot more we could point out, but I will stop at that. Now notice the next son, Ham, and from him comes the Afro-Asian nations. Ham is believed to be the forefather of those who make up great cities and empires like Babylon, Assyria. We read about these in the Old Testament. Nineveh, Egypt, and then Canaan, really, the, the, one of the sons here of Ham, is the father of the Canaanites. When the Israelites came back into the land, who were they dealing with in that land that was promised to them? The Canaanites. Who was that? That was a son of Ham here. So Ham, the youngest son of Noah's three sons, he had four sons himself. He had, uh, notice Genesis chapter 10, verse number 6. Go back there if you will. And the sons of Ham was Cush. All right, Tracy, if you didn't like those other names, there's more here, all right? Uh, Mizraim, all right? Uh, and that's, that, that word Mizraim is Hebrew for Egypt. Then there's the word put, the, name, the, 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 the son put, and then there's Canaan that is listed. Now again, Egypt, it's interesting, was later called the land of Ham. 
If you look at Psalm 78, 51, Psalm 105, 23, Psalm 106, 22, it's very interesting here that it discusses here and it mentions about Ham being associated with Egypt here. So Ham is really the father of the Arabians, the Canaanites, the Africans, including the Egyptians. And so that's what comes through this line. Now Japheth, from him comes the Indo-European nations. The Indo-European nations. From the Jephethites would settle, the, his descendants would go into modern Europe, Russia, and Turkey. Now you say, preacher, how do you know some of this? Well, first of all, I want you to understand something. There's confirmation that is given from many historians through the years, and one that is most significant is a first century A.D. historian by the name of Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian, and it's amazing how he connected many of the nations that came out of the Tower of Babel with the modern nations that were listed around at his time. In fact, he often listed the common Greek name for these nations, which provided a solid translation of ancient history into his era. For example, Josephus mentions that Gomer, one of Noah's grandsons, had descendants that the Greeks called Galatians. Does Galatians sound familiar at all to you? It's one of the books of the Bible. Paul wrote an epistle to the Galatians who were living in Asia Minor. Another intriguing connection is that of Magog, also one of Noah's grandsons. Josephus' research reveals that the Scythians were descendants of Magog, and the Scythians now are a variety of group of people that are living uh, north of the Black Sea. But now I want you to note something else and go to the book of Acts in the New Testament, and I'm winding down here, Acts chapter 17, if you will, and verse number 26. The Bible says... And, Speaking of what God has done, all right, the Lord has, He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's not, he, he's, he's not part of a temple that's made with hands. He's to be worshiped man. He's created man, given breath to all man. And here's what He's done He's made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. He's determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Now, why has God established all this, verse 27, that they might happily seek the Lord? You know what God is doing in every aspect of our lives? He's doing everything so you and I might seek God. But I want you to note something interesting about this verse and really the rest of the Bible. I don't think I have to go long with you to talk to you about the fact that our world seems to be hung up on a word called race. We have racial slurs that are given. We have people that are, are race baiting. We have people that hate other races. We have people that are just trying to destroy other races. We have politicians that are trying to keep races pitted against each other. But if you go through the Bible cover to cover, do you realize you won't see the word race used in the Bible? There's really only one race in all of this world, and it is, the, it is the human race. It's the human race. Scriptures, when it distinguishes different people, doesn't say, well, there's this race and that race. The Scriptures distinguish people by every tribe and tongue and language and nation. It doesn't distinguish people by skin color. 
It doesn't distinguish people by physical appearances. Because if we begin accentuating that and making fun of those things and saying certain things about it, then we're mocking the very God who created them. God has divided people by nations, and those nations came through these three sons of Noah, and by one man, Noah, and ultimately all of us through Adam and Eve. Now, I understand there are groups of people who have certain features and certain skin colors, and there have certain things in common. But we would rather and better be called these people by people groups and not races because there's only one race and that's the human race. It's quite sad that our world has so divided people in this way. We really are, as Acts 17.26 says, we're of all of one person. Now tonight as I close this out, it's amazing to me to be reminded if you go all the way down to the book of the, the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 5 verse 9 begins to lay out all of these people that have been saved and that are singing a new song unto the Lord, a song of honor and glory to the Lord. And it begins to tell us of the people that are gathered together. They're people of every tribe, nation, tongue. They're all gathered together, singing praise and giving honor to the Lord. And I really believe that when you and I think of this world, we ought not to think of people and divide people up as our world does. We ought to realize that every person, we are part of the common brotherhood of man, if you will, and every person deserves a chance to hear the gospel. When you go to the book of Acts, it's pretty amazing. Acts chapter 8 through 10, it's amazing how God brings us all together. He doesn't necessarily write it out directly for us, but if you study it out, it's very interesting. In Acts chapter 8, we are given the conversion of an Ethiopian eunuch, a descendant of Ham. In chapter number 9 of the book of Acts, it records the conversion of Saul Guess who he was a descendant of? Of Shem. And then you come to Acts chapter 10 where Peter is sent to the house of Cornelius and he brings Cornelius to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and he is a descendant of Japheth. Do you think the gospel should be given to every person? Absolutely. Every person needs to hear about Jesus. Every person needs to know, and therefore, it is our job to go tell people. Could I wrap this up tonight by encouraging you in two things? Number one, please as a Christian, don't get caught up in all of this racial stuff. We as a church, we welcome people, whatever skin color they are. Do you realize skin color is just some have a little bit more melatonin than others? It's just really what it is. We're not divided, per se, by skin color. God has established through these three sons of Noah all the nations of the earth, but yet we all go back to one blood through Noah, through Adam and Eve, and it's our job to give each person the gospel. What are you doing to get the gospel out? What are you doing to help in the area of missions? Yes, that light went out. That basically said it's time to wrap it up. I get it, okay? <laughs> Amen. What are you doing to get the gospel out? Are you giving money towards missions to go ahead and, and, and help us get the gospel to the ends of the earth? Are you knocking on your neighbor's doors to share with them the gospel? 
Are you sharing with your co-workers? Are you passing tracks out wherever you go throughout this town to let people know that there is a God who loves them and wants them to be saved, no matter who they are? I'm telling you, you need to love on people, wherever they are, whoever they are. And may God help.